You're listening to the Colonial Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast in Kingsport, Tennessee. We are a community committed to prayer, radical hospitality, and intentional invitation. Our Old Testament lesson is from Genesis, the 32nd chapter, verses 22 through 31. Hear now God's words for you. The same night he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and he sent them across the stream, and likewise everything he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And the man said, no longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with humans and you have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why do you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him, and he passed through Penuel, limping because of his hip. The word of the Lord. You remember a few weeks ago, we had as our text the parable of Jesus about the dishonest steward. Remember how uncomfortable we are with this idea that the master commends the man for his dishonesty? Well, today's text has a little bit of that flavor too. This is the Old Testament story about Jacob. Jacob the liar... Jacob the cheat, Jacob the deceiver. Shall I go on? Jacob is the younger twin of his brother Esau, son of Isaac and Rebekah, grandson of Abraham and Sarah. His name is a play on the Hebrew word for heel. For as he was being born, he grasped the heel of his older brother Esau, who comes out first. But what it really means is he who supplants, which is, a nice say, uh, which is a nice biblical way of saying Jacob means cheater. Jacob is the one who's determined to get ahead no matter what it takes. So I want to invite you to remember the Jacob story with me. I know not all of us remember all those details, and I'm not going to do all of them, but let's, let's remember together some of the things we know about Jacob. 20 years before the incident that we read about today, Jacob flees his father's home after he and his mother, Rebekah, trick the father into giving him both the father's blessing and the birthright which is really reserved for the oldest son. Now, to be honest, Esau had traded away the birthright some years before 
for what we used to say in the old King James, the mess of pottage. I went back and read that again, and the NRSV says, give me some of that red stuff. I'm not sure where the red comes in the Hebrew, but that's what it said. I always thought the mess of pottage was probably lentils, a common Middle Eastern dish. But the truth is, Esau probably never really intended to trade away anything. He was just hungry. But this is some family, isn't it? We certainly like to think for the most part that we are ethical people in ethical families who do the right thing, who know right and wrong. But if you go back and look at, uh, at the, the earliest of the patriarchs and matriarchs, you're going to discover these people weren't all that shining. I mean, Abraham is the guy who more than once tells the world, oh, she's not really my wife, she's my sister. Remember? When you read about them, it's enough to give us more than a little indigestion. So why does God choose this bunch who know how to lie, cheat, and steal? Why? The truth is Jacob is a lot like his forefathers and foremothers and a lot like us and ours. And yet God chooses and blesses and works diligently with them down through the ages, these less than perfect people, to bring a blessing for all the earth. So Jacob flees the wrath of brother Esau. He leaves with the clothes on his back and with a bartered birthright. And he lives up to the name of deceiver, the one who tricks another. He goes to the land of Haran, where he practices his his art of deception upon the guy who's going to become his father-in-law, Laban. But Laban is pretty crafty himself, if you will remember. He puts Jacob to taking care of the sheep and the goats, and Jacob falls in love with the youngest daughter. And so Laban says, well, if you work for me seven years, you can have her. And he works seven years, and they go through the whole marriage ceremony. And the next morning when he sees her face, he realizes it's not Rebecca. He's married her sister. Jacob is nothing if he is not persistent. So he labors another seven years to finally get Rebecca. Are you confused? This is a confusing story. Jacob is the shepherd, so 14 plus years, probably more like a total of 20. He is tending Laban's flocks. And through more trickery, which we won't necessarily go into, he convinced Laban that he deserves something more, so he convinces Laban to let him have all the speckled and off-colored animals. And then in a selective breeding program, let's just call it what it is, He makes sure that there's a lot more of them than they are what Laban's going to get. And they both get pretty rich at this. But after a while, it's clear they cannot dwell together. And Jacob, well, Jacob is forced to leave. 
And so Jacob decides, well, maybe it's time I went home. After all, it's been 20 years. But there's a catch. Isn't there always a catch? (laughs) How do you go home when you've behaved the way Jacob has behaved? That's the catch. How do you go home after being in such troubling circumstances? All right, so let's pause in this memory of the story to add another piece. This is an overlayment that covers everything else. For all his craftiness, his duplicitousness, his downright cheating, somehow or another, Jacob remains a follower of God. Astonishing, isn't it? He doesn't look like it. He doesn't always act like it. But Jacob has his moments. He remembers who he is. He is supposed to be the blessed leader of a covenant community. And he prays. Maybe not as often as he should, but not infrequently. And more importantly, God has a way of answering his prayers. God never forgets his covenant, even when we don't deserve it. So now we come to the crux of the story. That's today's lesson. Jacob is returning home, and he's going to have to face his brother Esau, this brother he's taken all this advantage of, and he remembers that his brother's already threatened to kill him. So he's afraid, and he ought to be. So as he approaches his homeland, he sends a messenger to his brother that he's on his way and that he's very rich and he's going to give him some presents. Can we say pay off? And then the message comes back that Esau is coming and he's coming with 400 men. Sounds like a raid, doesn't it? Doesn't sound like a friendly gathering. So Jacob is concerned. And he ought to be. So he sends out these presents one after another after another, thinking, well, maybe this will get Esau to leave me alone. But then at the last minute, he divides family and flocks, the ones that are left. And he sends them to two different places so that if one gets wiped out, the other one might survive. And last of all, he sends his immediate family, his wives, the maids, all the children, across the little branch of the Jordan called the Jabbok. And he stays on that side, this side, sends them across. Night falls, and here's where our story begins. Esau's just a little way ahead. Jacob, we understand, is afraid. You know that phrase we use, the dark night of the soul? I think Jacob's having one of those. He's left alone, camped by the little stream. He's wondering what's going to happen the next day. And as the Bible puts it, he wrestles with a man until daybreak. What man? He was alone. We hear that this man who Jacob wrestles with could not overpower Jacob, but neither could Jacob overpower him. 
And eventually, the man with whom he is wrestling, I guess one of the wrestling moves, I'm not sure what he does, but he displaces his hip. And still Jacob won't let go, and the sun is rising. And so the man says, let me go. And at this point, Jacob begins to understand something else is going on here. Something bigger than what I had thought. And so he says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man he's wrestling with says, "Uh, what is your name? And he says, Jacob. And he says, no longer will you be Jacob. You will be Israel. First time we get the name Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and you have overcome. Well, Jacob's feeling pretty good at this point, even with a hurting hip. So he says, well, what's your name? And the guy says, why do you need to know my name? To know the name is to have power in the ancient world. You don't need to know my name. So he blesses him and disappears. And Jacob is left alone. Limping Jacob gets up to cross the stream. And he says, I'm going to name this place Penel, which means here I saw God face to face, but my life was spared. And he limps away, and he ends up with some level of reconciliation with his brother, and he goes on to become the extension of the family for which all of us count our lineage and faith. Like so many other stories and encounters in the Bible, many scholars say it's not ever as simple as it looks like it is. There's lots of questions here. Who is this person, this man that Jacob wrestles with? Sometimes we talk in modern psychological terms about wrestling with our own demons. And we don't normally mean, you know, actual demons. What we mean, of course, is talking about our own problems, wrestling with who we are. Did Jacob wrestle with his fear, his own personality? In this moment alone with God, did he examine the way he had of always looking to take advantage of everybody else? Was he wrestling with this thing where he is always doing wrong? Whatever it is, we know that it's more than just that. It may be that, but it's more. For in the middle of his own fear and mental anguish, he is sure that this wrestling in the dark, this draining fight is an encounter with the Almighty. And this encounter leaves him with a mark. He's got a displaced hip. And so far as we know, he walks with a limp from then on. This is not, oh, I was hurt a little bit. Uh Uh-uh. This is permanent. And we know one other very important thing. He knows that it has either been God or God's agent 
that he's been wrestling with. Jacob gains something here. He gains another blessing. But he loses something too. You do not wrestle with God and come away unscathed. For Jacob would not be the same man he was the next morning. He has a new name. He's Israel. He has a new identity. He has a new mission. God has touched him and his life is going to be different. Now, does that mean he suddenly became perfect? Oh, no. When you read the rest of the story, you're going to discover that he's not perfect. But this is a monumental, changing moment in his history and ultimately in our history. But again, I want to be careful naming who it is that Jacob, now Israel, wrestles with. The Scriptures say it was a man. Does not give any indication that it's a divine being. Well, at least not until later. So how can Jacob give as good as he got? How can he wrestle this being, if it's supposed to be God, to a draw? Because essentially, neither one of them could win. It's only when the time is nearing for the rising of the sun that Jacob thinks there might be something that's just a little bit different about this dark figure that wrestles him. Frederick Beekner in his book, The Sons of Laughter, describes it this way, and this is Jacob talking. He says, He was not a god of the river, which is what I thought at first, nor was it Esau come to kill me. He did not overpower me until the moment came to overpower me. And when that moment came, I knew that he could have done it any time he wanted to. Was the figure playing with Jacob? Was it a ploy to force Jacob to look not only at what his life had been thus far, but what his life might be? Who is the figure that wrestles with Jacob? God? An agent for God? Something else? The great Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says that the biblical writers absolutely purposely make this obscure. They don't want us to be able to say exactly who it is. Jacob thinks he knows. And it sure changes who he is. So Jacob wrestles the night long, not knowing who or what. But he will not let go until some good comes from it. So, how many of us can look back at some major struggle in our own lives and realize that along the way, it was God with whom we wrestled? I have. I hope you have. We live in an age where we think we can go through life without any struggles. How ridiculous is that? The dark night of the soul, it's something everybody has to face. 
God is so often found in the very midst of struggle. Even when we're feeling alone and abandoned, it's often only in hindsight that we say, oh, that was God. We didn't know it at the time. I still remember, I I don't remember much from college. It's been a really long time ago. (laughs) But I still remember one line that came out of a book by, I always remember the name too, David Elton Trueblood. And it was a book about the philosophy of religion. And here's the line. An untested faith is no faith at all. An unexamined life is no life at all. Jacob's struggles by the river were long, they were hard, they hurt. And not his family, nor his friends, nor his wealth, nor anything else was going to keep him from having to go through this. So I ask again, haven't you known times like that? I am certain that if you've not had that long dark night of the soul, you will. And if we are to grow... Oftentimes, that's what it takes us as disciples. It's always long, it always hurts, and we're always left with a mark. In those times, there's doubt and confusion and anger and despair, and the mistakes we've made catch up with us, and we punish ourselves oftentimes more than God can punish us. But it's a necessary part of growing toward the morning. Maybe, just maybe, Jacob's wrestling at the river was a sign of God's grace that will not let us go. Now, it's not the grace we usually think of and the way we usually want it. It's not God patting us on the head and saying, there, there, everything will be okay. No. This grace is an assault in the dark. And don't think of it as any other thing. This is a wrestling match. This isn't gentle. This is a battle virtually unto death. It's frightening. It's painful. It's costly. And yet it is grace that changes us and gives us a new name. And a new future. You remember the, I guess one of the most important figures in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, on his road to Damascus, struck down blind, turned completely around from what he was to who he was. And do you notice he's given the new name? He was Saul and now he's Paul. New names change who we are. Maybe some of us are troubled with this idea that we can wrestle with God as mere mortals and wrestle God almost as equals. How does Jacob wrestle God to a standstill? Doesn't sound like God, does it? And yet, when we speak of God's grace, that strong, all-powerful, all-encompassing grace, which we don't deserve, which we can't earn, how do we see that better 
than in Isaiah's suffering servant that we apply to Jesus himself. Might God have wrestled Jacob precisely as the one willing to do whatever it took to redeem? What kind of God allows human beings to wrestle God to a draw? I think we know the answer to that. The same God who's willing to lay down his life for miserable sinners like Paul, Saul, like Jacob, Israel, like you and me. Everybody, everybody carries inside some pain, some hurt, some issue with which we struggle. It is an inevitable part of, inevitable part of life. And maybe oftentimes as we seek to deal with that, that is one of those places where we're wrestling God. But God's tough. And God can take whatever you want to dish out and still be stronger and more gracious and more loving than you ever imagined. Remember the old adage, that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Maybe that's what wrestling, God, wrestling with God is. But I remind you again that if you wrestle God, it's going to leave a mark. And again, if you want a New Testament example, let's go back to Paul. Paul's thorn in the flesh, you remember? And him praying, take this away from me. And the answer is, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. If it's good enough for Paul, what makes us think it's not good enough for us? Jacob becomes Israel and a changed man. We have a new name too. It was the name we were baptized into. Our name's Christian. And that's supposed to change us. Doesn't stop the wrestling match. It doesn't mean we will not know those long, dark nights of the soul. I think the next few years in the ministry in this church is going to be a wrestling match. As we wrestle with each other, with God, to discover what God expects us to be doing next. But if we hold on, if we're willing to go through, shall I call it a process or shall I call it a wrestling match? If we're willing to go through that, we will not only emerge stronger, but we will emerge with clarity of purpose. And the church will be stronger then than it is today. Disciples wrestle with God. Get used to it. Get ready for it. I'm not going to tell you to enjoy it. It's not often fun, but it has to happen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Colonial Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. 
For more information about our faith community, visit us online at chpres.org.